truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 196 of Dogcast Radio, which you can find at dogcastradio.com. I'm Julie and this show is all about the wisdom of wolves. Later on, we have the Dogcast Radio news. Wolves are born in the spring and scientists have now discovered that dogs born in spring are less likely to suffer from heart disease. And sadly, a tribute to Buddy. In looking back at his life, I've come to realise that he was a dog of requirement in that whatever we needed him to do, he did. He rose to the occasion, he met the challenge, he danced, he consoled, he poured love on us. But before that, I'm talking to Jim and Jamie Dutcher, who were able to get unprecedented access to never-before-seen social behaviours of wolves. The Dutchers observed a complex, compassionate, family-oriented creature that debunks the myths and fairy tales that have maligned wolves for centuries. No one has ever done what Jim and Jamie did. And no one will ever be able to do this again now, due to permitting issues. So the Dutcher project was truly special. Today I'm talking to Jim and Jamie Dutcher. Hi, Jim and Jamie. Hi, good Hi. to hear from you, Julie. Hi, you. great great to be talking to you, because I've, I've read the book and it, it's fantastic, so I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to you today. Tell us, first of all, before we actually get to the sort of the, the, the wolf, the meat of the wolves kind of thing, how did you how did you come to be in the position of being able to observe and and interact with them so closely? Well, in the wild, uh, wolves are so afraid of people. You know, mm. a, a wolf sees a human being, it, it runs away. And we wanted to get inside a pack of wolves and um, study their social life. So we started with puppies and gained their trust. From the moment they opened their eyes, we were bottle feeding them. And then we let them loose in a huge, huge enclosure at the foot of a 10,000-foot mountain wow. in the Salt Mountains and then camped with them for six years. But it's, it's important to understand, Julie, that you know even though we bottle fed these pups, they were never treated as, as pets. They they wouldn't come to us. You know, you couldn't call them. Everything was on their terms. If they chose to come up to us, it was on, you know, it was because they chose to. We couldn't go up to them. And, um, it, you know, it's important to know that all behavior studies, all social studies done on wolves um, have been done with captive packs because you can't see, really see this behavior in the wild. You can't get close enough. So most studies have been done in very small enclosures of one to three acres and uh, we had the largest enclosure in the world it was 25 acres and you know we neither dominated nor submitted to the wolves we were just very neutral so that we could be filming them and recording their sound without changing the way they were we could you know they wouldn't be like oh what are they doing you know we were just like part of the background which was terrific yes yeah it's an amazing amazing experience and brilliant and What's lovely as well is being with them so long and, as you say, six years and and being able to be fairly close with them. You never lost your sense of awe about them, did you? No, no. Uh, you know, every day was special and um, we, we, you were always learning something new. You know, the more time we spent with them, it, it, it just it just really reinforced how social and, and caring and loving they were towards each other. And we were just learning more and more every day. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, you, 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 you sort of got your enclosure, you, well, the huge enclosure, and you got your walls in there, established in there. And tell me about when, 
when um, and I'm going to get their names. I'm going to um, <laughs> pronounce them all wrong. <laughs> but when um, Chemuk's um, cubs, you Chemuk. Thank you, Chemuk. <laughs> thank you. Um, so you you that because that was an amazing story where you you sort of you get to be in the den. That's so amazing. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty remarkable experience. Um, I. You know, I had a, a pretty close bond with her since she was a pup, and uh, we knew that uh, you know that one of us was going to have to go into the into the den just to make sure everything was okay, and uh, you know it was decided that it was going to be me because I had th- this relationship with her, and uh, I I sat outside the den and and just sort of waited for her to you know for me to decide when was the right time, and she she came out of the den and sort of gave me a look, and I kind of thought well. Okay, I think it's time, and uh, hopefully I won't get bit on the rear end. But if I do, I'll have quite a story. So um, uh, she just moved to the side, and I wriggled down with a, uh, a small flashlight. And uh, the den was uh, – well, the, the tunnel was about a little over six feet long, and it opened up into a regular large area, the den part. And the pups were actually not on the floor of the den, but on an elevated – shelf that she had dug out to keep them off the, uh, you know, off the bottom. And uh, I got a look at them and they were just adorable and then wriggled my way out, which was much harder than going in. <laughs> and, uh, and she, uh, she, I, I got out and she was sitting there and she gave me a lick on the nose and went back in. It was, it was truly remarkable and incredibly special considering she would not let any of the other wolves into the den. They would all hang around the den, but they, they wouldn't go in. Wow. Incredible. And saying about the other wolves, because they sort of all all gathered near the the den, didn't they? They obviously were very interested. And family is really important to wolves, isn't it? And they all sort of, they all help look after the the cubs. And they, it was really interesting to read about that they, they all feed them. You saw them all feed them. You saw them all play with them. And it just sounds beautiful. Yeah, the pups belong to the pack. The mother gives birth to them and she nurses them. But all the other pups, um, are, they're very, very excited about this. And this, the adults, yeah. The adults are. Yeah, and um, the birth of pups is they just got a bigger team. You know, it, it's very important for them. And so the, they all take care of taking care of the pups. Yeah, some are, some are uh, playmates, some are teachers, some are just, you know, uh, there to, uh, to help feed them or they all, they all help feed. But it, it's just it's a it's a it's a communal effort within the family. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that sort of really, really intrigued me was that and, and, and you, you've observed this, but you, you've um, and this is a general observation of people who sort of watched wolves that they there is this sense in them that they, if they come across um, a young, you know, a, a cub, they will adopt it into the family. And also, th- there's this strong sort of bond there. But also, um, because I've watched documentaries where, um, nature documentaries where wolves, uh, sorry, where lions, if they kill the sort of the lion and take his place, they will often kill his babies as well, his cubs. But wolf life isn't like that, is it? No, lions do do that, um, sort of perpetuate their own genes and take oh. over you know, their pride. And but wolves are different; they um, they adopt puppies. If, oh. if a young pup, um, they'll bring it into the pack and nurture it, 
And um, we started our pack with pups. And um, a, a woman up in Montana uh, gave us a, a litter of pups. She had taken over a pack that was going to be euthanized. It was part of an experiment for the U.S. Navy. And um, so she took the adults and saw a film that we had made on mountain lions and thought we could do a lot of good for wolves. So she gave us pups. And um, it, over the years, she gave us more pups. And um, it was really touching to see how they, they, the, the adults would just love these little pups. And we'd, bring, we'd keep them separate at first with a chain link fence. And the adults would actually bring bones and toys and stick them through the fence for the youngsters oh, to. Oh, yeah, it's a family really is everything. And, and uh, you know, every every wolf, every every pup grows up to be a, a viable member of the pack. So they're they're very important to to them. Yeah. Yeah. That was another thing that was really interesting. You know, what is a wolf family? Because you've got that sort of um, nuclear family of the, you know, boy meets girl and and, and the, the, they have babies. But then they sort of they can become very extended, can't they? That was really interesting. Well, well, yeah, at the top of the family or pack um, is the alpha wolves or leaders of the pack, male and female. And they're usually the only ones that mate. And below that, there's a beta wolf. Um, uh, so something happened to, um, say, the alpha male, maybe the beta male would take over. Um, that's usually the case, but not always. And at the very bottom of the pack is uh, the Omega, who is a kind of a scapegoat. He's forced to eat last and often picked upon. Um, in the middle of the pack are uh, mid-ranking wolves, and they jostle together to sort out who is more dominant than the other. But um, it, it is a family. Yeah, and we're, you know, with the, the reintroduction of wolves to central Idaho and Yellowstone National Park, um, the observations that are being made of wolf families have been, you know, far beyond what people have been able to, what people ever were able to imagine or observe. It's, it's very, it's very fluid. It's very, um, it's very soap opera like, very Shakespearean. You'll have, um, you'll have wolves that will leave the family, start their own packs, and then perhaps come back with that pack and join, join the original family. And so you have, you have mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, adoptees. Um, you know, uh, it just, it, it just is all much more fluid than, than we thought they, they do keep their, uh, the familial bonds, even if they do break away and start new packs. Yeah. A couple of years ago, we were watching a, a, a den in Yellowstone and um, the story of this den was that there were actually two dens and the um, uh, the leaders of the pack uh, decided that the betas could mate. And so these two sisters had litters in two separate dens, maybe a mile apart. And one den got raided by a grizzly bear in hmm. the bear of the den, but they didn't get to the pups. But the mother was so traumatized that she took all her pups one by one and went over to her sister's house and stuffed them in the den with the old <laughs> oh. with the older um, siblings. And we could see the younger ones and the older pups um, miles away with uh, spotting scopes playing around together. It was really quite cute. Oh, oh, that's lovely. Yes, I'm going to my sister's. I'm off. <laughs> um, so well, well, while we're talking about that, because there was another story that um, was you kind of you, you were sort of cheering on, but also at the same time going, oh, gosh, right. That's that's quite, you know, brutal for want of another word. But the story of um, the, the other two um, 
I don't think they were sisters, were they? But Cinder- the, the Cinderella Wolf and Wolf 40 and Wolf 42. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, they, they were sisters and um, they, they had identification numbers. 40 was uh, the alpha or um, the breeding female of this particular pack, and 42, which became known as the Cinderella wolf, mm. was, um, was her sister. And uh, there, was a, there was a point where um, I think the alpha had chosen to also breed with the Cinderella wolf, 42. And 40 was such an aggressive alpha that uh, it is thought that she ki- actually killed the pups, um, uh, her sister's pups and you know was a very ag- aggressive uh, ruling female so to speak and uh, she was always picking on 42 just all you know always giving her a hard time and it, it really seemed like none of the other wolves really actually liked her in the pack either um, 40 the alpha so uh, it turned out that uh, again in, in another breeding season the alpha decided to breed with 42 and um 40 showed up at her den site we think ready to kill the pups again or you know cause trouble but amazingly all the other females rallied around the cinderella wolf and they killed 41 i mean excuse me 40 they 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 staged a coup and uh, they just, they weren't going, we're not going to take her uh, iron rule anymore. And then uh, 42, actually, Cinderella Wolf became the alpha female. And she and uh, the alpha male ruled um, for many years, very successfully. They had a very successful um, pack after that the, the, in the Druid, the Druid Peak pack. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, you know, it's kind of rebellion, isn't it? Right, OK, we're going, going to revolt here and we're going to install a different leader. So it's, as you say, it's, sort of quite, it's quite shocking. But at the same time, you're cheering them on going, yeah, yeah, you go for a better life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting with, you know, with, with wolves, when you, when you talk about, you know, that, you know, they, they're quite generally quite benevolent and really, you know, they take care of each other and, you know, they live their lives very similarly to our own, you know, and, and people get, some people get very upset when they hear something like that, like, oh, my God, wow, could they kill another one? Well, you know, we do that in human society. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we do it a lot more, and they do it a lot less. And it's just, you know, it's, it's tribal. It's, it's very tribal for them. They have their, um, their, their ways of being. And, you know, we, we, have, we could learn a lot from, uh, from, you know, what wolves have to teach us, how we could be better people. But they're also, you know, a lot like us in, in the way that they take care of their society. Yeah, yeah. Now, something I'm, I must talk to you about is, is the term alpha. Because certainly in, in the dog training world, it's sort of become an abused and misunderstood term. So yes. to, the, to the point where it's, it's quite a sort of, you know, it's a dirty, shocking word now in dog training terms because it's, bec- it's be- being used to sort of say, oh, you must dominate your dog and you must, you know, really, really be the boss. And that's not what you've seen in, in the wolf world at all, is it, from an alpha? No, it, it's not. And it's interesting. It's uh, uh, Alpha is actually falling out of favor in the wolf world as well. Hmm. We still use it as a term not to describe aggression uh, or dominance, but to to describe the, you know, they're they're the leaders, they're the parents, you know, they're, you know, generally the breeding pair, you know, you've got the top and the bottom, the omegas at the bottom. Um, but but absolutely, you know, and, and also alpha 
can be used to ter- as a term in, in human society as, you know, a overly hormonal <laughs> male that's very, that's very aggressive. And, it, and really in wolf society, it's not. And, uh, you know, um, our alpha, for instance, was a very benevolent leader. He really led with kindness. There was, you know, there were very few disputes. And, um, and it, it's really, you know, domination is not, uh, is not the, uh, the key to all of it. You know, they do have their arguments and their disagreements where one may, for a, t- for a moment, uh, dominated another over a, a carcass or, you know, uh, during feeding, but th- then it's done. It's not a, it's not a continual thing. Does mm-hmm. that just make sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. And again, I'm going to, uh, is it Kamotz? Kamutz? How do I say his name? Kamotz, you were right. Kamotz. Okay, great. I got one right. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you, you sort of say with him that, you know, very, very occasionally he had to remind or, or felt the need to remind other wolves and kind of go, hey, I'm the boss actually here. But most of the time that they remembered that and he didn't have to be um, aggressive, if you like, with them. He just he, he had the, the presence and he was sort of they, they he got the respect he deserved, didn't he? Yeah, he, he asserted himself. But the, the, the alphas, the leaders of the pack, um, they have the knowledge of um, where to cross the rivers, where where people live to stay away from that, um, where, where to um, how to take down a larger animal like a moose or a bison. Um, so that this knowledge that the older wolves uh, and the alphas have um, is passed on to younger wolves, and they're constantly teaching. And uh, one of the tragedies of hunting wolves um, and to try to get rid of the alphas, for instance, you know, they're the leaders that brought the wolf pack into my ranch. Well, you know, if you get rid of the alphas, you get, end up with a, a worse situation because you have a dysfunctional pack of y- younger um, wolves that um, aren't holding together as a large pack of, say, 10 or 12 wolves that are capable of killing their prey, elk or deer, and bringing it down and protecting the carcass from other uh, packs. Um, So if you have that happen, and often we would watch our alpha, the Kamats, he would respond to any danger that happened, any sound in the forest. He was the first to leap up and go investigate. So if you have a hunter coming into the forest, it's the larger leaders of the pack that put them themselves up in front of the perceived danger and when you that happens you kill, kill the knowledge of the pack and make it much much worse and these wolves they can't um, bring down these larger uh, animals like uh, deer and elk and moose they end up um, looking for slower uh, livestock to feed upon it and so it makes it worse for ranchers yeah yeah do you think it's sort of a, a vicious circle if you like where that contributes to the because you say wolves are they are you know the most misunderstood large mammals in North America and do you think that's sort of that's why because we sort of instinctively fear them and oh, oh there's a big wolf and, and you know very sadly it gets shot or hunted um, creating a worse problem is is that sort of feeding into that. Yes, it it really does. It, it is quite a, a vicious uh, cycle, and and you know not only is it the most misunderstood in North America, but really all over the world. I mean, we all have you know our our uh, our family dogs that we love so much and uh, we truly care about, but we we wouldn't have our companion next to us without 
the um, the wolf because all uh, you know wolves and dogs share the same mitochondrial DNA, and uh, we owe so much to wolves. How strange it is that we have a hate for no other animal as as much as wolves, where we really love our dogs. And uh, you know, it, it's it, the, I, I think the fear and hatred is perpetuated by the old European myths of Little Red Riding Hood and the Three Little Pigs and and um, Grimm's fairy tales, and and also, you know, when uh, there were wars and plagues in in, uh, Europe in early times, and people were buried in very shallow graves, you know, uh, wolves are also opportunists, and, and, uh, you know, they might dig dig up a grave site, and, you know, imagine hearing that snarling and growling, and really, that's just their language. It's not aggressive. It's not mean. It's just their language. But we we hold that inside of us and and uh, have taken that from uh, from the old world to the new world. And that's a very difficult thing for people to let go of, as well as the fact that, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the new myths that, uh, you know, wolves will uh, – kill all the deer and elk that that hunters want to uh want to kill and you know that's that's an absurd thought wolves and their prey have lived together for eons and they balance each other out so it's uh, it's a lot of myth to uh to dispel yes yes it's going to take some time but i th- hopefully you know your films and, and and the book will sort of go a long way towards doing that for example can you tell us please the, the story um bob and nell harvey saw an adult male Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Bob and Nell spent a lot of time in Yellowstone, I think over 100 days last year. They're out there watching the wolves with their spotting scopes, taking notes, coordinating all their findings with the researchers that are out in the field. And so they're, they're very valuable. And they, um, we have a, a sort of a favorite uncle in our pack, a young wolf that just liked to play with the pups. But they saw something similar in, with, the, uh, with the pack of wolves in Yellowstone, where this youngster went out, um, probably just looking for ground squirrels, and came upon the carcass or skeleton of a bison. And uh, this buffalo um, head that he brought back, he he thought, I guess he thought, he, um, this would make a great gift to his younger siblings. And so he carried back this monstrous skull of a bison. Normally, it would probably take 10 minutes to get back to the rendezvous site. It, it took him way over an hour, carrying this thing uphill through the sage, over the rocks and everything, and just to deliver this gift to see how his siblings would um, appreciate it. And of course, they tackled it like they would have a, a live moose or a, a bison and um, played with it and made keep away. And, you know, it was really a cute story and it's yes. part of the that we wrote yeah yeah lovely and as you say it gives another insight and takes away that that sort of fear of them as, a, as this fierce animal that you you see no they're you know a lot of breed, dog breeds get a reputation as being fierce and sharp it's because they love their people and i think maybe you know with with the wolves they have this strong bond this this love of each other and you know they they defend each other but um but it is a beautiful world isn't it 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 really truly is. They they care deeply for each other. They they mourn uh, lost relatives deeply, and uh, it it is an, a very unfortunate way that we have of looking at wolves. You know, I think a lot of it, as I said, stems from the uh, the, the growling and snarling, which is really only their language. Yes. And you know, people, if you are fortunate enough 
to come upon a wolf in the wild, the only reason you are seeing that wolf is because he or she wants you to see him. They're normally so afraid of people. And for them to give you a glimpse, you know, of their of, of who they are is is truly a, a spectacular uh, gift. Yeah. If you're wild, if, if that if that, you're lucky enough for that to happen. Yeah. One, yeah. one of the stories I like to tell, because it really turned my ideas about wolves around at the very beginning of the project. One of our wolves got killed by a mountain lion, mm. and it was it was the first omega of the pack. And um, because she was always picked upon, she would just kind of pull herself away and go off and be by by herself. And a uh, mountain lion coming through the territory there climbed over the fence and got into the enclosure and killed her. And um, the, the pack um, d- didn't see it happen, I guess, but did probably hear something because they ran back to where we saw that the carcass of this wolf had been carried up into a tree because we could see some of her black fur up in the tree and at the base of the tree claw marks of of a wolf uh, of wolves trying to get into the tree to get to the big cat mm. um, the way the, um, the the carcass was fed upon was very similar to what I had seen when I did a film about mountain lions they they usually lick off the fur and then open up a cavity and and feed that way where a wolf they just pull the the body all apart and uh, and um, separate the limbs. But what was really important about this observation was not how this animal died, but, but rather how this pack reacted to her death. And um, for about six weeks, they stopped playing. The um, wolves play all the time. Anybody that researches wolves and watches a pack will see play uh, two or three times a day. Always. And they stopped playing for six weeks. Um, and they stopped howling as a group. They would always howl at this rally and all of them together to celebrate the solidarity of their family. But after that, they would howl separately and very mournfully. And um, weeks and weeks later, I'd walk through this area where this all occurred, and you could see that the expressions of these wolves would change, and their tails would go down, their ears would go down, and they would sniff the ground as they were, as if they were remembering or mourning um, their uh, their playmate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that must be so humbling to to witness that they you know that they are thinking back to their loss that's it's just again you I, I keep coming back to this but it really is a a beautiful world that you show in this book isn't it well we we hope so and, and we hope that people can can uh, can perhaps take a take a a, pl- a page out of the wolves playbook and uh you know you can learn a lot from watching wolves and you know, we we've learned a lot about ourselves, our you know people we know, you know our our family pets. It, it's uh, it, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Besides the title of the book, Wisdom of Wolves, mm. which is with National Geographic, we also um, want to tell people so they can learn more about wolves to go to our website. Um, we have an organization, a nonprofit, that this is what we do. We travel around the country um, giving presentations, having exhibits of our images, and um, it's called Living with Wolves. And um, you can look us up. In a, in a couple of weeks, we were redoing our website, and that's going 
going to be quite a treat because it's the entire exhibit, over 100 images of wolves and text and stories about wolves. And, and um, it's a wonderful teaching tool that we're putting together. Mm, fantastic. That sounds really great because there is so much interest in wolves as, as sort of the ancestors of our dogs. And we sort of keep looking back and, you know, trying to see links between them. But there is so much interest. And, you know, as you said, we can learn so much about them. You talked a little bit about sort of how they eat there. And again, I'm going to mangle some names here, but Matomo and Amani. And they were... Oh, did I get them right? You yeah. sure did. These oh, great. Native American names. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, Native American names. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. So t- can you tell us about there? Because they sort of, um, they decided they, they were going to get some food. They were going to sort of work. They were going to out- outthink Kamat, didn't they? Yes, yes. They... Uh, uh, Amani and and uh, Matoma were mid-ranking wolves, and you know mid-ranking wolves are constantly trying to to up each other to just be one a little bit better within this mid-ranking group, and um, you know Amani was sort of the the boisterous, uh, a little bit of a, a bully. And, you know, he would, you know, try to be the tough guy. And uh, Matomo, we used to call him a man of few words. He was, you know, very quiet. And But he really was uh, um, uh, dominated or, or, you know, was over Imani when it really counted. And that was on a when they were feeding. But there, so there was this one situation where um, uh, we had fed the pack. And what we do is, you know, they weren't fed every day. It was on a, on a wild schedule. Um, we, you know, because we couldn't keep, um, you know, live prey in the enclosure, that would have been unethical. We would bring in uh, roadkill, uh, deer, elk, antelope. And so, and that was every five to seven days, depending on the size. And then they would digest for several days and then we'd bring in another. So we had brought in uh, a deer and, uh, you know, the the pack had fed on that, but we had, somebody had brought us a, a very small deer that wasn't really enough for a full meal. So we figured, you know, just afterwards, we would just add that uh, into into the mix for the day. And, uh, you know, everybody had gotten their fill, but, you know, Kamats was standing over this little deer and, you know, not letting anybody have it. And it was going to be his. And, you know, there, um, there wasn't really that much left. And, and we could, we were observing this and, and we could see Amani and Matomo off to the side almost having a, a conversation with each other. They're whining back and forth and, you know, their body postures were changing and it, it was like, like they were hatching a plan. And so all of a sudden, you know, Amani comes running in, grabs a little bit of fur uh, from what's left on the ground and goes running off. And of course, Kamats, it stunned him and Kamats <laughs> goes running off after Amani. And so then Matomo comes running in, grabs something bigger, and then Kamats sees that. Amani dropped it, dropped his little piece of fur, and Kamats went running after Matomo, and then Amani came in and grabbed the rest of what was left of the carcass. So they like had hatched this this clever plan, which left Kamats kind of looking at each other looking at the two of them like, Oh yeah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite clever and very amusing. Yes, yes. And you you wonder how on earth I mean, you know, to to a, a very verbal, you know, species to to humans. You wonder how do you manage to set that up with no words? Oh, I know that. Well, their you know their communication is so intricate. You know, besides 
uh, you know, the obvious body postures, you know, tails up or down and ears, ears forward or back. They have such an array of vocalizations and in all of our years living with them. And, you know, I did most I did all the sound recording. You know, you could really you know, I could I start to identify the wolves without even seeing them. And and you knew that that they were having conversations from, you know, just the, the way that they would vocalize and then certain things would happen. It was it was uh, they, they have a very rich language that that we just don't understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because that that was interesting as well, the way that you sort of the sounds of the wolves became, you know, very important to you. And I like the way you talk about their Chewbacca noises. Yeah. <laughs> From Star Wars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. That was, you know, besides the whines and growls and yips, they had this sound. It was like a. <laughs> yeah, it was like, like Chewbacca and Star Wars. It was it was really funny, and I had no other way to describe it. Yeah. And I would be, you know, listening to my sound at night. It's like, okay, well, what is this? And it's like, well, it sounds like Chewy. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was that was a happy noise, wasn't it, when they made that? was a really happy noise yeah oh lovely lovely you know another bit that made me laugh was when um you were talking about attitudes to the male and female alpha and sort of when they get up and stretch the different (laughs) attitude of the rest of the back that really made me laugh yeah, we're learning more about that from Yellowstone and the researchers who we have out there. Um, but they watch a pack of wolves and um, the male, the alpha, will get up and stretch and, you know, and the pack just looks up like, mm-hmm. And, but the female alpha will get up and all the rest of them jump to their feet and say, I, I guess we're doing something now. <laughs> I love like that. It's like Parks and Human Society, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, that, that was what I was thinking. Yes, <laughs> I thought that was lovely. This kind of yep. Okay, something's really happening now. We, we've got to get up now. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Um, and you, you, you mentioned already, sort of that the the wolves could choose to um, interact with you, and, and and very often they do. And and sort of and some of it again is beautiful, and some of it's funny. Um, but tell me about. Um, I think this was Jim, wasn't it? Where the day when you were filming and you it was raining and you you were seeing lovely um, chasing playing behaviour and it was raining and you got your Mac on the camera. But Kamat had other ideas, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the very first. Um, it was for the first litter of wolves that there were yearlings at that time, and it was the first um, storm of the season, and the snowflakes were really beautiful, and the wolves were running around, and. I didn't see Kamats come up behind me. I had my camera covered with this raincoat, and he got a, a, a bit of it. And before I knew it, the raincoat was gone, and the pack was chasing the, the wolf with the raincoat, and they were tearing it apart, and there was nothing really natural to film. So <laughs> it was over. <laughs> but they had fun. <laughs> they did. The thing about wolves is, God, they, they love everything you have. They want they want to investigate anything that you have touched and and uh, you know so you really you know when we had would have our, our film and sound gear you had to keep everything so close because the wolves were so stealthy and they could sneak up behind you and try to steal something and you know actually uh, when Lewis and Clark were exploring America 
they um, their stories in the journals about how Lewis and Clark would set up camp and, you know, they put their shoes outside their tents to dry and wolves would come in and steal their shoes. <laughs> and they could actually like just bang them over a head with a stick and get them back. <laughs> they just want everything you have. They're very yeah. Cute. Yeah, they always wanted my hat. <laughs> the, the, the old um, Australian bush hat that I wear um, was getting pretty old at the end of the project. And I thought, well, I'll, I'm just going to let Kamas get this and take it. So I was pretending to be filming and he snuck up behind me and whoop, the hat was gone. <laughs> and then Matsi was chasing after him and the hat would go down over his eyes as, as he was thrashing through the willows. It was it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Never seen much of the hat anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet, I bet. <laughs> but this enclosure that we had, it was just unbelievably beautiful and huge. We had willows, aspen, cottonwood trees. Um, we had a pond, a stream. And you could lose a wolf in there for days if they didn't want to see you. But we never saw a wolf pace the fence. They, they never tried to climb out. Um, and the reason was not, not they their family was there. Yes. They, they had no desire to leave. And so even though there was all this space, we put our camp in the middle of the enclosure and put up chain link around it so they wouldn't steal everything from us. <laughs> but they would sleep right around us. And yeah. one of the Wahats, who was a um, youngster at the time, he would um, actually sleep probably four feet from our heads as we were in our tent with our heads to the canvas and just outside was the chain link, he would lay down right next to us. And in the night, sometimes the wolves would get howling off in the distance and Wahats would take and howl right there and it would just launch us out of bed. <laughs> I bet. Cause it, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it and it's, it really does. It puts all your hair on, on end, doesn't it? It's yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It does. It does. Yeah, raise the hair on the back of your neck, and it, but it is a hauntingly beautiful sound. And they it's don't lovely. all do it together. They, they each one has a different song, hmm. but it's not sung together. Mm. Round, I guess yeah. you would say. Yes. Yeah. 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 And again, how do they set up who gets what part with no words? <laughs> <laughs> Generally, the the um, the leader, the alpha, will will start generally, and uh, then the rest of the wolves will will follow in. So it's an improv. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he gets to choose the key, though he starts. <laughs> he starts. He starts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I say, wolf camp just sounds amazing. I just I can't imagine. It must have been a wonderful, wonderful experience to live so close to them. And again, how lucky were you to sort of be able to have that wonderful location, but also to make it so that you could get, you know, really good film of them at the same time. Yeah, it, um, you know, we, we were very, very fortunate. We, uh, the camp was on Forest Service land, and this was right before uh, there were real uh, serious talks about wolf reintroduction um, in the West. And so we were able to slip under the radar, so to speak. And um, We couldn't so, do it again. Yeah, we no. would... Yeah. The ranchers would make too much of a fuss, and the, the Forest Service would never issue the permits again. Yeah, so, you know, we were able to build this this really great enclosure, and, of course, we had no electricity and no running water, and which really sort of made the whole thing much more magical. And uh, we, we really were quite 
quite fortunate, you know, uh, through the project when uh, when wolf reintroduction was getting underway, uh, we, you know, we did receive a lot of threats uh, in the mail and, you know, signs that would be posted in the wool in the woods, you know, saying move the wolves or we will, you know, very aggressive. But, mm. you know, we, you know, it, it's it was unfortunate, but, uh, you know, we didn't seem to have any other problems other than the threat. So the Forest Service made us move after being there for six years camping with them. And we uh, made a deal with the Nez Perce tribe of northern Idaho and br brought the wolves up to them, built a similar um, situation for them there where they lived out their lives as ambassadors. And uh, they still live their lives as ambassadors, even though they're all gone uh, in the books and films and and um, uh, exhibits and presentations we do. And uh, it's really quite touching because they, they really touched us. Yes. Yeah. And that really, really does come across in the book. It's, it is a very, uh, moving book. And it's, it's the kind of book that you're reading. Oh, why can't I do something like this? You know, it's just, oh, this is so fantastic. Um, is, is, is there anything that we haven't discussed? Cause I know it's, you know, it's a, a vast uh, topic, but is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to, to mention to people? Well, I, th I think, you know, it's, it's in, in this book, it, it gives people an opportunity to to really understand the wonderful family oriented, uh, compassionate animal that we have not only in North America, but throughout Europe. And if we can allow uh, the wolf to get a foothold in these areas and, and allow them to survive. It's not only good for us, you know, for our souls, but it's also good for the land. You know, wolves are keystone species. They improve ecosystems. And, you know, that's been documented since wolves were returned to Yellowstone National Park. Everything is thriving in Yellowstone. Things have come much more back into balance because of wolves. They they bring uh, elk and deer herds more into balance. They, they keep keep uh, the elk moving, which prevents uh, the erosions of streams and rivers, which then, you know, makes the water cooler. And then we get more, you know, fish can come back and it's a better um, riparian habitat. So then songbirds come back, beaver come back. It, everything just really comes together when you put wolves back in the ecosystem. And I know, you know, that they're, they're just, you know, beginning talks and thoughts about uh, rewilding uh, parts of the UK. And, and uh, it, it's something that, that we should all consider seriously. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, let's, let's hope your, your book and your film sort of at least get people having a dialogue about that and, you know, thinking about it. And um, let's, let's hope it does happen. Um, there's, I, I just want to come back to because I, I said earlier, you know, you, you never lost your awe for the wolves. And there was something that really resonated with me because I, I, I've often said, say it about dogs. So if I, if I see a dog tied up outside a, a shop and I'll kind of go, oh, you are a better dog than your owner is a owner, you know, because they've, they've left you here. And, and that's one of my bugbears. I really don't like that. But there's a quote in the book saying, um, I think it's from Rick McIntyre. Um, is that, yes. Yeah. Um, Certain wolves I've known, they were better at being a wolf than I've been at being a person. And I think that's, that's a lovely sentiment because, you know, the wolves, you, you, you paint a picture of very honest, caring, beautiful animals. And, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful book to read. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank, thank you. You. It, um, you know, it, it really, they, they did teach us so much about being better, better people and, and, uh, 
you know, what, what wolves are really all about. And I think there's there's another quote in the book uh, by Gary Gadwan. I, I don't know if I can remember it offhand, but you know, there there is room for wolves if we uh, leave, you know, if we keep space in our heart for them. I can't remember, but uh, that's Ed Banks. Yeah, sorry, Ed Banks. Um, and it, it's it's true if we just open up our hearts and really see wolves. Uh, our hearts and our minds to see wolves for what they really are, um, rather than the myth and misconception. We can live together. It, you know, it, it's completely possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's hope your your books and films open people's hearts to that possibility. Well, thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Julie. Wasn't that amazing? Wow. You can find out more at their Living with Wolves website, and we have a link to their book, The Wisdom of Wolves, on the Dogcast Radio site. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. We have doomed the wolf, not for what it is, but for what we deliberately and mistakenly perceive it to be, the mythologized epitome of a savage, ruthless killer, which is, in reality, no more than a reflected image of ourselves. Farley Mowat. And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News. Dogs and wolves share an ancestor from whom they both evolved around 40,000 years ago, and this means they share many traits. Wolves are born in the spring, and scientists have now discovered that dogs born in spring are less likely to suffer from heart disease. Using data taken from 130,000 dogs ranging across 253 different breeds, the study used an algorithm to collect data including the dog's date of birth, fur colour, breed, sex and health information. In the end, they had amassed a huge data set of dogs with cardiovascular issues, and each dog was assigned a tag of either abnormal, equivocal, or normal. Thanks to domestication, dogs breed all year round, but sadly, research revealed that dogs born in April and May had the lowest risk of heart problems, while those born in July and August were way more likely to suffer from heart issues. Many animals, including humans, are affected for better or worse by their month of birth, and while the exact cause remains unknown, it could be connected to exposure to sunlight, pollution, or the flu virus after birth. Meanwhile, in Hungary, scientists were looking into obesity in dogs. Dog owners in Budapest were invited to participate in tests during which their dog was presented with a low-value bowl containing something not very filling or exciting to a dog. Owners were told to instruct their dog to wait while a further bowl was brought out which contained either nothing or a high-value, tasty meal. The dogs were categorised as average weight or obese, and their reaction to the food was observed, with the expectation that obese dogs would be more likely to wait for the potentially high-value meal, but in fact, the more overweight dogs were more likely to decide not to wait and to start in on the low-value meal as soon as they saw it. Evolution comes into play with this research because, from a wild animal's point of view, there are advantages to eating food as soon as it is spotted. And talking of eating food as soon as it's spotted, the Labrador Retriever has long been the most popular breed in the UK and USA, but so far this year in the UK there have been more puppies of another breed registered. The breed in question is the French Bulldog, but as we've mentioned many times before, popularity is not always a positive thing for a breed. 
A study published five years ago called Demography and Disorders of the French Bulldog Population Under Primary Veterinary Care in the UK in 2013 has worrying implications that as these young French Bulldogs age, there is the potential for many of them to find themselves in rescue. The rising demands for the breed, driven by media images and celebrity ownership, has seen breeding go from being controlled by responsible breeders to being taken over by some only interested in cashing in on the desire for puppies. The sharp rise in the number of Frenchies also means that there are more puppies around than adult dogs, with the median age of the breed being 1.3 years, and there is the possibility that as the reality of life of the badly bred dog kicks in, dogs bought on a whim will be dumped. Let's hope not. Absolutely, we can hope, but it's very worrying. Here's a worry that most of us don't have when buying a dog, that it will turn out to be a completely different species. We heard last time about a Chinese dog that turned out to be a fox. And this story takes us back to China, where Su Yun bought what she was told was a Tibetan Mastiff puppy. However, Su was surprised when the young animal started to walk on two legs and developed a huge appetite, including a preference for noodles and fruit. Incredibly, it took two years before the truth came out and the family realised their huge dog was in fact a 250-pound bear. Heartbreakingly, the animal has been identified as an Asiatic black bear, which is endangered, and is now in the care of the Yunnan Wildlife Rescue Centre. I think we need a happy story now, so how about the tale of a dog who went from languishing in a rescue centre to living it up in a palace? A palace? Yes, a royal palace. The dog in question is Beagle, who was found stray in woods in Kentucky and was taken in by a shelter. Sadly, when nobody showed any interest in him, he was placed on the euthanasia list. Hurry up and get to the palace. OK, but he doesn't go directly there. Hang on. Dolores Doherty runs an Ontario-based organisation, a dog's dream rescue, which saves beagles at risk of being put to sleep in America and brings them to Canada, where they will hopefully find a home. A network of volunteers transported the beagle the 500 miles he had to travel, and this is where the magic begins, because in less than 24 hours our canine hero found himself at a rescue event, meeting members of the public, in the hope of finding love. And who should walk in and fall in love with him but Meghan Markle, who was in Toronto filming Suits. You probably know the rest of the story, but initially, Guy the Beagle, or HRH Guy the Beagle, to give him his full title. Hang on. HRH? His Royal Houndness. Anyway... Guy first became an Instagram star, and then when his mistress became engaged to Prince Harry and moved to England to marry and become Duchess of Sussex, the fairy tale ending was complete. Ah, and now he has lots of corgis to play with. Yes, and Labradors, Spaniels, Bull Terriers and Jack Russells. The royals love their dogs. They do. I'm so pleased for Guy, the rescue beagle, who probably now has his own butler and his own food served on a silver platter and diamonds on his collar and... I'll just get on with the last story, shall I? And a lovely one it is, because in truth, it doesn't matter how rich you are in worldly terms. A dog will love you for you. But when retired psychiatrist Milt Lesner found himself dogless and a widower after many years of marriage and dog ownership, he set about seeking out a rescue dog. But there was a hitch, in the shape of his age, because most rescues turned him down on the grounds of him being 104 years old. Fearing another rejection, Milt turned to Lionel's Legacy in San Diego, who specialise in placing older dogs. Soon, Layla, a Labrador mix, was in residence, and the arrangement is that as long as Milt is able to care for Layla, he can foster her. And so far, both Milt and Layla are doing very well together. That's it from the Dogcast Radio News. Until next time. Everyone 
everyone knew there were wolves in the mountains, but they seldom came near the village. The modern wolves were the offspring of ancestors that had survived because they had learned that human meat had sharp edges. Terry Pratchett. Buddy passed away on the 9th of June at the grand old age of 15 and a half. I have dreaded his death for a few years now, since the first time he got cancer, and I have dreaded having to write and deliver his tribute. Sharing this with you makes it real and final, but it's something I need to do because it wouldn't be right not to commemorate his life and give thanks for the fact that it was such a full, long life. We called him Buddy, but his pedigree name was Pool Hall Magic Kingdom, which was a nod to our love of Disney, but also an expression of the hope that he would open the door for us to the magic kingdom of dog ownership. And my goodness, he did that for sure. His siblings went to be assistance dogs for Dogs for Good, so I knew that I had a dog with a lot of potential and that any training troubles were almost certainly down to me. However, that's not to say he was an easy dog or in any way a pushover, especially in his youth. One day, my mum had left her cardigan hanging over the post at the foot of our stairs, and when we discovered that Buddy had managed to dislodge it and was merrily stomping and rolling all over it, he was in trouble. He knew it too, and he immediately performed a huge gamble, ending up sitting upright, still on the cardigan, a disarming grin on his face. As if to say, how can you be cross with me when I'm so cute? Rather than scolding him, we laughed, and Mum learned to hang her cardigan where Buddy couldn't reach. His brain was always first class, and although he didn't take straight away to basic training, initially disliking lying down on command, we had fun with trick training, which he loved. When he saw me getting the clicker out or the alley-oop, his tail wagged enthusiastically. That was one of the first training lessons he taught me. Your dog picks up on your attitude to training. If you regard basic training as a necessary chore and trick training as fun, so will he. Bless him, that enjoyment of learning and also performing stayed with him. And even when he could no longer hear spoken commands, he still loved a gentle training session, working on hand signals, which we'd introduced when he was only three, but enabled us to communicate with him as he became increasingly deaf. In fact, he was a very effective communicator himself, flicking his eyes from me to his food or treat store and back to me significantly when he thought it was dinner time or he just fancied something tasty. He learned the word dinner very early and we'd become very excited when he knew he was about to be fed. I got into the habit of asking, do you want some dinner? And his anticipation would grow with each word. So then I started to play with it. Do you want some lawnmower, a sofa, dinner. And it was always on the word dinner that his agitation reached a crescendo and he rocking-horsed back and forth. When he was two, we started Dogcast Radio, which in truth would never have existed without him. It was me falling into conversation with other dog owners, coupled with Mr Dogcast's technical knowledge that gave birth to Dogcast, for which Buddy was a fantastic ambassador as well as an endless inspiration for Buddy's diary, stories and articles. When he was three, we added Star to the family, and he was an indulgent, patient older brother, particularly in her puppyhood, when she seemed to spend most of her time lying on him or chasing his tail. 
To distract her, he would grab a tug toy and entice her to play tug of war, stopping the game and holding the toy still for her to get hold of when she lost her grip. The Buddy and Star years were happy ones. When Buddy was five, I was gripped with the idea of taking him to Crufts, and we embarked on more serious training and spent a year qualifying him to attend the show, a project we called Crufts or Bust. During this more intensive training, Buddy showed his sense of humour and fun time and again. In the middle of an obedience display, he ran over and weed on a hay bale that was being used as audience seating, leaving me to approach the poor man in question, saying, I'm terribly sorry, did he get you at all? Another time, at an obedience competition, he heard the dog in the next door ring, who was also called Buddy, told to fetch the dumbbell. And quick as a flash, my Buddy ducked into the next door ring, retrieving the dumbbell before the rightful owner got anywhere near it. When we did agility training, Buddy had me and Lee Gibson doubled over with laughter when his habit of celebrating a good run by veering off to try out a piece of equipment of his choice finally caught up with him. At that point, he had not been on a seesaw, so when he careered up it, it was a complete surprise when the board beneath his paws suddenly seesawed away, leaving him marooned for a split second in mid-air, legs still pumping, grin on his face. And that grin was almost always on his face. His excitable nature always ready to bubble to the surface. Carol Thornley, who trained us in heel work to music, said he was not the easiest dog to work with, though I thought he was perfect. And with her immense support, we actually put together a routine and performed it in front of a crowd, being judged by no less than Kate Nicholas of Kate and Gin fame. Happy, happy days spent building my bond with my dog and making precious memories. Jill Arnold, the trainer who guided us through bronze, silver and gold good citizen classes, couldn't believe it when he got overexcited during one of her classes, bounding around the room in happy oblivion. She called him to her, encouraged him to lie down and massaged him. Buddy went limp with relaxation. But as soon as Jill stood up, Buddy was on his feet and careering around once more. He was not as easily deflected as all that. Anyone who saw him tip into his overexcited mode, was stunned, but he always calmed down, never did any harm, and I loved the fact that he had his own agenda. And despite, or maybe because of, his strong, impulsive nature, Buddy learned an impressive range of behaviours, taking part in the Kennel Club's safe and sound teams displays in the main arena at Crufts for several years, being an education dog for the Blue Cross, and even getting to the final three of a competition run by national TV show this morning to find a dog for the Dales for soap opera Emmerdale. When we checked into a hotel in Leeds for that competition, we arrived in the busy lobby, laden down with suitcases and Buddy's bed. I put the bed on the floor, and Buddy immediately lay on it, gazing around him calmly as if to say, Well, it's noisier than my regular bedroom, but I can sleep here. The only trick he steadfastly refused to learn was that of balancing a treat on his nose or paws. If a treat came within swallowing distance, he was jolly well going to eat it. But you know what? He learned so many other great tricks and behaviours that I could forgive him that, and I loved the fact that he had opinions. During his years with us, he shared the house with other dogs, cats, ducks, a quail, hamsters, rats and guinea pigs. Out of the house, he met sheep, 
cows and pigs, and we even took him to a dog-friendly aquarium where he saw fish, snakes and spiders. These last he took very little notice of, and in truth he always preferred people to animals, and I do wonder if he saw himself as human rather than canine. Who knows? When Jenny was a child, he would lie beside her on the floor as she watched TV, wagging his tail when she laughed, keeping her company for hours. She would make him, and later star too, tea parties with her toy tea sets, making them wait while she poured out tiny drinks and dished up minute sandwiches. I think her caring but playful influence led to them both becoming such patient, well-behaved dogs. Years later, when Jenny injured her leg and was confined to a wheelchair for a year and spent much of her time lying on a sofa bed in the lounge, Buddy lay right beside her. During that difficult time, Star died, and Jenny credits Buddy with getting her through that year because he was always there for her. From his point of view, his needs were being met, someone he loved, immobile and very grateful for cuddles. He stayed with us as long as he possibly could. And I'm so grateful that he stayed long enough to have about nine months overlap with mischief. And during that time, he got to pass on the baton of being our faithful family dog to her. In looking back at his life, I've come to realise that he was a dog of requirement, in that whatever we needed him to do, he did. He rose to the occasion. He met the challenge. He danced. He consoled. He poured love on us. I hope he knew how much we adored him, how we'll never forget him, and how he changed our lives for the better in so many ways. I don't believe in Rainbow Bridge. It's a nice story, but no true heaven would deny entry to the pure soul of a dog until their flawed owner arrived. Wherever Buddy is, I know his tail is wagging, he's grinning, and I will see him again one day. Until that day, run free, my beautiful, beautiful boy. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcastradio. That's all one word, dogcastradio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What's a dog's favourite coffee shop order? Pugkin spice latte.